Well, this is the second week in a row of me preaching that I'm going to begin with an illustration about airplanes. Uh, I actually didn't fly for the first time until I was 17. And both of my parents, I grew up in Seattle, both of my parents are from Washington, all four of my grandparents are from Washington, and so we didn't really have a reason to leave. Uh, My family is not really one that travels, we just kind of felt comfortable in the rain and the clouds and the trees, that was kind of our home country. Uh, But when I was in high school at 17, my best friend uh, was selected to be a page in the United States Senate in Washington, D.C., the the other Washington. And so he headed off over there, and his family wanted for me to be able to be present at his graduation from the Senate program in Washington, D.C., and offered to fly me along with them from Seattle to Washington, D.C., to participate in that. And uh, my mom said I could go, and so for the first time, I got to fly in an airplane. It was uh, January, one of... uh, 300 other cloudy, dark, rainy days in Seattle. And uh, we headed down to the airport at SeaTac, and I went through security and uh, got my boarding pass and waited nervously and kind of excitedly out at the gate. Because I figured flying was kind of one of those things that that cool, rich people did. And uh, I was going to get a chance to see what this was about. And so when the time came, we, we boarded the plane, and the plane started taxiing out to the runway. And the flight attendants went through their safety instructions with my rapt attention. (laughs) And uh, I remember looking around me in shock at all the other business guys who were like closing their windows and totally zoning out. I was like, guys, we are about to leave the ground. (laughs) This is kind of a big deal. And so we finally made it down to the end of the runway. Engines at full power, airplane goes racing down the runway, and all of a sudden I feel this tilting motion, this push from below, and the airport goes, and the city got smaller and smaller. But then the most remarkable thing happened. The airplane hit the layers of cloud, and everything went white. And we kind of buffeted up more and more through the clouds, and then all of a sudden we burst out from the top of the clouds and it seemed as if the airplane was skimming across the sea of cotton and above it was the bright streaming shining shining sun illuminating everything with this bright shocking light and I realized for the first time in my little life that all those years in dark and cloud that even when it's cloudy Did you know that the sun, it's still up there? (laughs) And I honestly had never thought about that before. I'm I'm sure on some level I knew that the solar system exists outside of and above the cloud layer, but on an experiential, emotional layer, I had never seen it before. And that was my number one takeaway from my first flight. (laughs) And I can remember coming back from my trip and walking across my high school campus on another gray and rainy day, and looking up at the clouds and just thinking to myself, it's a sunny day, 10,000 feet that way. It's still there. It's really bright. I just can't see it. Who knew? Because for the first time in my life, I had had a chance to get out of my comfortable little place and kind of get above it all and get a vision for what was happening up there. And that is what I am hoping that this little passage can do 
for our little hearts in this little room this morning. It's, uh, it's an awkward, goofy passage with a lot of words about circumcision and Gentiles and Jews. And I remember reading this when I was a young Christian thinking, okay, so Jews and Gentiles are at peace. That's, that's cool. Uh, but I think there's something bigger going on here that gives us a vision about what God is excited about. And uh, for a long time, I wasn't quite sure what to do with this passage or how to preach it on this morning. And this is my takeaway. I just want to share the excitement of this passage and share it with you and invite you in to the goodness of what God is doing. Uh, We here live in the West, mostly the West. Uh, Almost all of us grew up in the West, although not all of us. And uh, we have a culture. One of the hallmarks of our culture is individualism. Uh, that we in the West have recognized, rightly, the value of the individual made in God's image and that each person is, is their own person and has value. And, and this is the great strength of our culture that we, in a sense, have brought human rights to the world. And it's not like this everywhere. There are cultures where the idea that a person, an individual, could vote and ought to have a say in what we're doing is a pretty mind-bending thought. But we get that, and that's good. But every strength comes with an accompanying weakness. And that is our weakness as well in the West, is that we have missed the power of the group, of what it means to be part of a people. And we as Christians are part of our culture. If you think that Western individualistic culture has not influenced you, think again. We have our rights and our voting privileges and our preferences and our individual career callings and our iPods and iPhones and iPads. This is is, is not an accident. We call these I this and I that. And we have Jesus and me, the I gospel. And it's not untrue. It's true. And it's a strength we have to share with the world But this morning I want to ask, and I think this passage challenges us to ask, what have we missed about Jesus and us instead of Jesus and me? The passage begins this way. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Uh, Well, there's a lot in this passage about circumcision. Uh, In fact, this is kind of one of these cross-cultural things because the Bible is actually not a Western document. Uh, It was not written in English. It's, It's a first century document and an ancient Near Eastern document. So this is one of the things that we have to translate in our culture. And in the Old Testament, the Lord gave circumcision to Abraham as a mark, as a sign of his people. Sort of like we use baptism now. If you are baptized, you're baptized into Christ. You're one of his people. And in the Old Testament, you were, in a sense, circumcised into the faith of Abraham. And it was a marker to sort of remind, these are our people. And I have spent time studying the Old Testament and am abundantly convinced 
that the Old Testament it was designed to be a story of God working with a specific people so that they could be a blessing to the world. We've talked about this before here. He chose to begin specifically with a people. He did choose a people, and he blessed them so that they could bless others. And so circumcision became sort of a mark of, these are the people that I'm working with right now. Not those people, these people specifically, and I'm working with them so that they can be for all those people out there. That is the circumcision-uncircumcision distinction, or Jew and Gentile. And the ancient Israelites were not very good at this calling to be a blessing to the world, just as we often are not very good at this calling. Uh, in fact, they were so not good at it that they developed a whole theology around not being good at it that said that this, this distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised, between Israel and non-Israel, was less about God is working through us for them and more about God gave us circumcision because he likes us and he doesn't like them. And so he called us and we're awesome and they are trash. And this was a predominant theology that existed by the time that Jesus came. And if you read the Gospels, it's a theology that he does not have a lot of patience with. And so Paul here is, this is the dialogue that he is interacting with. He is wrestling and trying to disconnect and deconstruct this theology. Let me read on. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's the hostility I was talking about. It's sort of like, we're in and they're not. It's hostile. He's broken it down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There is, when Jesus comes, a new expansion of what God is doing, and I choose the word expansion because I, I wouldn't want when I articulate it as sort of like he changed his mind and he did something different. But he began by working with Israel for the people. And once Jesus comes in the fullness of time and the Holy Spirit, he's ready to continue the same thrust in a new, expansive way. Now he works with everybody. And the Holy Spirit goes with everybody. And through his work on the cross, he's abolished that crib that he created for the Israelites, as Brandon spoke in the children's message of laws and ordinances. He's broken that down through his death and resurrection on the cross, and he's on a mission to all people. And so Paul simultaneously is articulating the good news of the expansion of God's ministry. Everybody's in now directly. You don't have to get circumcised and become an Israelite to be in on what God is doing. But at the same time, he tears down and does away with this theology that says some of us are in and God loves us, and some of us are not, and he doesn't like those people. And he makes clear that this is a mission that God is on to redeem everyone in every place. A Gentile is simply non-Jew, so it's everybody else, like us. Uh, and so the good news for us is this enabled us to be part of, of what God is doing. Uh, let me back up for a second. Our passage begins with the word, therefore, and in a perhaps overused Christian phrase, 
you should always ask what the therefore is therefore. Because therefore implies that what is about to be said is because of what was said before. So what was said before? The first half of this chapter in Ephesians chapter 2 is Paul's great statement of the gospel, the good news in the book of Ephesians, where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and Christ Jesus came and made you alive, even when you were dead. And he finishes off this way, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what precedes the therefore is the good news that Christ Jesus came and made us alive. And then he immediately proceeds to say, therefore, the implication is he, he has united us all together in Christ and broken down the dividing wall of hostility between peoples. In fact, the whole chapter functions like a parallelism. If you follow the argumentation of the, work, of the words, it works like this. Before you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now... Christ has made you alive. Therefore, remember, before you were alienated from the covenants and from Israel, but now you are brought near. Make sense? He's intentionally doing a before and now, a wait. But if that's true, then also this was true before and this is true now. The conclusion is all of the people that God is calling being brought together in unity is the direct implication and cause of what the Lord did on the cross. In fact, if you look in verse 16 in our passage, it says this, that Christ might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, which is everybody, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And in English, the natural assumption is the hostility we're talking about is the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And in verse 14, that is the hostility that he's talking about. But in Greek, which is hard to translate, it makes clear that he's talking about a different kind of hostility. In this passage, the direct referent to the hostility is God. Here's what it means. That by breaking down the hostility between Jews and God... And by breaking down the hostility between Gentiles and God, Jews and Gentiles are therefore made one. That because of what Christ did on the cross, because all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, were dead in our sins and transgressions, and he made us alive, now we all have a common experience of grace, and through Jesus, we become one. Does this make sense? Um, I am in the beginning stages of getting into Premier League football. Some of my friends in seminary were into Premier League football. This, by the way, is soccer in England. And uh, kind of began bringing me into the fold, and I uh, just got to spend some time with my father-in-law on vacation. And he's from Manchester and Liverpool. 
He is a Premier League follower, and so I am, I'm getting sucked in. By the way, the first game was last Saturday, and I'm happy to report that Liverpool won 1-0. <laughs> so I've been researching my new team, because my father-in-law is a Liverpool fan. He's from Liverpool, and so these, these are my people now. And uh, the Liverpool team has a motto that comes from a song, I guess, that most of soccer, football teams over there have a song. And so Liverpool's comes from a musical called Carousel, and the song is You Never Walk Alone. And if you're from Liverpool, you know this song by heart, and you can sing it in the bars at night, and tears will stream down your face, because when you're from Liverpool and you're a fan of Liverpool, you never walk alone. And there's always hope in life. In fact, if you go to the Liverpool FC website and click on Join the Fan Club, well, first of all, the link kind of gives it all away. How did it put it? Um, I was looking at it this morning. It says, none of us are as strong as all of us. You never walk alone. <laughs> so then you, go, you click on the link and you go to their fan club page, and there are over 230 recognized fan clubs in England, France, Germany, Greece, India, Africa, South Africa, Kenya, Indonesia, Japan, United States, just not in Hawaii yet. (laughs) So people of different languages and histories and ethnicities and skin color all over the world are now united by a common experience of Liverpool (laughs) football. I actually have thought for a long time that one of the closest images of some of what takes place in worship is actually in sports. That when you get a bunch of people together in a stadium and they are really excited about the same thing and we're all from a different place, but when we sit in the stands together, we are together and we never walk alone. And that's good. But what the church has is better. A, because for the last five years, football, Liverpool hasn't made it into the top five. So now you walk together with all the other people that get made fun of by Manchester United fans. (laughs) But also because in the church, we are united around a common experience of redemption in Christ combined with the power of the Holy Spirit from outside of us transforming us from the inside. And that we are now united with people all over the world, in a common experience of redemption, being brought into the same kingdom, but each of us bringing our unique flavor and culture and nationality, but in a redeemed and beautiful way into one team. And at the end of the age, we will gather together in one massive stadium and be really excited when our king enters. How does this play out for us here and now? Because the passage is about the tension between Jew and Gentile, And Gentile is a pretty meaningless word these days, and I don't know many Jews. Here's what I've already been trying to get at. Jew and Gentile was the conflict of the day. The point is, all of us are united through redemption in Christ. I want to apply this in two ways. The first one is, I just want to start right right here in this room. Some of you do not like each other. That's pretty normal. If that wasn't the way it is, I would be concerned. 
because the church is supposed to bring together people of different backgrounds and natures and bring us together in this unity in Christ because of our common experience of salvation. We've been unified by this union in Christ. Uh, The summer I also went to a family reunion, and I have memories. This is from my family rather than Susie's family. I have memories when I was a young kid of our whole family getting together for Christmas parties and birthdays, my aunts and uncles and grandparents all together. And they're mostly old memories because when I was seven, my parents got divorced and my extended family could not handle that. And so as a result of that and a number of other kind of weird conflicts, we just kind of stopped talking to each other and have had not a lot of conflict, not a lot of interaction whatsoever since about 1987. And um, my mom and her siblings uh, are all at the point now where their kids are off in college and are beginning to feel the need to reconnect. And so for the last three years, we've got together twice um, in Washington just to spend time together. And you know what? It's really awkward. (laughs) Because I've hardly spent time with these people since 1987, and there's a lot of junk that's still there that nobody's really talking about yet, and that stuff just doesn't go away. But we're also family. And we could all go to our different islands and different parts of the world and not talk to each other if we wanted. But even then, we would still be family. We've always still been family. Some mystical way that's hard to identify, we're still brother and sister and cousin and aunt and uncle, and it never goes away. That somehow, in the family connection, whether you like each other or not, who knows why you're bound together with these people. Birth doesn't seem to be a very good reason, but somehow it still matters. That they're always your brother. They're always your cousin. That there's a reality inside family that is not necessarily a reality that's, that's felt. It's not a unity that's always outward and obvious, but it's still there. In a mystical, hard-to-pin-down, yet unavoidably real kind of way. And that is the kind of unity that exists in this room. It's a statement of fact. It's not something we aspire to. It just is. You guys are unified together. But what would it look like for us to see each other first and foremost? When you saw other people in this room and the first thing you saw was, oh yeah, that that is someone who's been loved and forgiven by Jesus Christ. He died for them and he loves them. Just like he die for me, and loves me. And just as with my family, does the conflict just go away? No. It's still there. But it now takes place in a different context. And context is everything. That we now have a playing field on which those sorts of things can be resolved in a way that that nobody else has. I also want to talk about applying this on a global level. Because of where we live and the time in history when we live, we have an opportunity that I don't know the church has ever had before quite in this way that is easier for us to communicate and connect and travel and meet Christians around the world than it ever has been before. 
This has always been a reality. The New Testament is a collection of letters written between people and churches in different places in different cultures. And one church raising an offering for another church and sharing their resources, that's always happened. It's just easier and more obvious than it ever has been before. In a sense, diversity and globalization were Jesus' idea first. And because of the grace and reconciliation that come in Christ Jesus, I think the church has the best tools in the world to offer peace and unity between all peoples. In 1910, missionaries from all over the world decided they wanted to get together in one place and meet together and talk about what God was doing and share stories and see if there's a way where all denominations and all Christians might be able to work together. And when they tried to figure out where to meet, the most obvious place to meet, hands down, without even thinking about it, the mission-sinning center of the whole world, where all missionaries come from and all money comes from, was Edinburgh. And so in 1910... The first massive global missions conference took place in Edinburgh. And Europe was, at that point, the mission-sinning center of the whole world. England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Germany were each in their own way a predominantly Christian nation. Filled with people transformed by the gospel and the love of Christ, whose first allegiance was to King Jesus, their Lord, who had redeemed them all. And then in 1914, an archduke was shot somewhere. Some people got mad at other people, and guns started getting shot because we're English, and you're German, and you're French. And so millions of people died. And Europe lost its testimony. Not only did the world stop listening to Europe, they stopped listening to themselves And now, in Edinburgh, you can find John Knox's grave under a parking spot because they have given up on the gospel because the gospel did not bring them peace, it brought them war. And what I'm trying to say is if the Christians in 1910 and 1914 in Europe had taken their calling as first and foremost identified as citizens of Christ, World War I would not have happened. And the tragedy of it happening is that the testimony was lost. That who wants to listen to people who result in wars like that? But the history doesn't end there. History is filled with tragedies and triumphs, and Christ is still at work. And he's at work among us. In the verse that immediately precedes the beginning of our passage, chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. He is speaking of the new creation. You are the new creation. Jesus is making a new people. Not in a way that sort of obliterates all of our distinctions, but brings together all the diversity in a glorified way. A new creation. Let's fast forward to our passage in verse 17. He's describing the new creation. Because new creation is the transitional thought between the two halves of the chapter. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that's us by the way, 
and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Most of the yous here being plural. That you, you guys, y'all, are a brick being built together with other bricks into a holy temple. At the end of Revelation, there's the vision where John sees the city coming down from heaven, which is 12,000 miles. I need 1,200,000 miles. Brandon, I need your help here. 12,000. It's a city 12,000 miles square coming down from heaven. And in Revelation, there's a sheep that gets talked about a lot. And most of us intuitively know in reading through Revelation that the sheep is not actually a sheep. It's Jesus. It's a symbolical representation of Jesus. And the city with the the big pearl gates and the streets of gold, 12,000 miles square, about the size of the moon, coming down from heaven is not actually a city. It's you. He's building on this image from Ephesians and other places where we are bricks being built together into a holy temple, a city where God dwells. This is why I am so excited for Sema and our friends from Japan to come visit us. It's not that Sema is some superhuman, the best pastor that ever lived, although I do think he's a pretty good preacher. It's because he has something we need that by very nature as a Japanese Christian, I've got a strong hunch that he's got a message for us that we need to hear. He has a perspective that we don't have, that we need each other in the gospel, that when you get this vision that Paul has in this passage where reconciliation with Christ by implication automatically means reconciliation with everyone else, and the point is us being bound together in one person, he says, or in one city, the image we get in Revelation, you begin to feel a need to be connected with these other people and hear what they have to say. And that's what I pray for to begin developing in us that we sense a need. Yes, someone is coming to us from another culture. How good this is. What, what could he possibly have to say to us that we need to hear? What an exciting opportunity for us to experience in a literal physical way what is mystically and often intangibly true that we are Christians together. Um, When we were in the beginning stages of seeking this partnership with the international church and beginning to think that maybe SEMA and Grace City might be our partner, I had a chance to go over to Japan on a completely different errand. I flew over there to baptize a baby. And while I was there, I was like, I'm already in Japan. I might as well meet up with SEMA. And so he and I had lunch together and chatted about his work there, and then I got to go worship with him on a Sunday. Let me back up for a second. As we were beginning to explore 
the potential of this relationship, a friend of mine recommended that I read this book. It's a fiction novel written by a Japanese Christian about the revival that broke out in Japan in the 1600s and was crushed by the government. Sometimes persecution leads to the church flourishing. Sometimes persecution leads to the church dying. That's what happened in this case, mostly. So the novel's about that. In the course of the novel, one of the government leaders of the persecution has a minister in his clutches, and he looks at him and he says, Don't you know that Japan is a swamp? And Christianity is a tree, and that tree will not grow here. It is not good for us, and I am tearing it out. And so with this book that I had just finished reading fresh in my mind, I went to worship at Grace City Church Tokyo. And uh, they worship in Japanese. And they sing songs that I was not only not familiar with, they're just not the kind of music I'm used to. And... They had a translator there and little headphones like they do at the UN. And so I got to sit in the back with these headphones and have someone translate for me what's going on. And in the midst of the service, they took a break from singing and they recited the Apostles' Creed together. And I realized that the Apostles' Creed fits in Japanese just as well as it does in English because it had to get translated to English as well. And that here was a community that was very Japanese. This was the tree growing in the swamp. Take that, Satan. The tree is alive. And here is a Japanese expression of Christianity. I'm excited for that. For us to have a sense of that connection. So I've given us a vision of what... Jesus and us might look like locally, what it might look like globally. I wanted to give you something practical to to end with. And I asked myself, what, what is there to do about this? I think the biggest piece is to be excited to study and meditate on and think about this image and what it could mean for our planet. And then I realized this, that the churches that I have seen that live this out the best, where you have multiple cultures and different expressions of Christianity present in the same community, which I believe our church is called to, because all churches are called to that, the dominant characteristic I see is people, church members, on a, on a church member level, who are so excited about this, this vision of bringing multiple people together, that they are willing to let that vision take priority over personal preferences. Remember, I began with our Western emphasis on individualism. I'll repeat again, it's not wrong, but what would it look like if we began, if we, I don't want to say began, we began a long time ago. If we more and more ask ourselves, what would it look like to live together with Christians here and around the world and in this room in such a way that we put the excitement of being together in Christ just a notch ahead of personal preferences? Here's my last illustration. Usually I have like one illustration and I got a bunch last night. I'm excited to share them. 
Coming back from vacation, Susie and I have been watching a lot of The Lord of the Rings because that's how my life feels a lot. (laughs) And uh, we've made it to the third movie now. And I realized last night as I was thinking about this talk that in The Lord of the Rings you have the citizens of Gondor and they've got their priorities, mostly survival. And you've got the citizens of Rohan, the horse community out in the plains, and they have their sets of priorities, mostly survival. And you have the elves and their set of priorities, mostly getting out of here and taking the ship to wherever that is that we live forever. And then, of course, of the story, it's abundantly clear that if they all continued to exist in their little communities about their own priorities, that they all would have died. In the movies, at least, I can't remember if this actually happens in the book, but in the movie, in the Battle of Hornburg, when Rohan is about to get wiped out, who shows up? But the elves, who laid aside their personal preferences and actually their lives, over an ancient vision, their leader says, Years ago, there was an agreement between our people, and we are here to honor that agreement with our lives. Let us stand together. And then a short time later, the armies of Mordor come to crush Gondor, and they're about to all die. And then who shows up? but the armies of Rohan, who've never been helped before by Gondor, and they show up. And without working together, each one of these people would have died. And I don't know quite how exactly this works out in our church life, but I'm convinced the same thing is true. Unless we work together in this room and with other Christians on this island and other Christians around the world, we will die. But if we work together, there can be life. If we trust our king and his vision, the king will return and we will all worship together in the white city. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for...